You're listening to TIP. Now, if that's the case, again, it's really important for investors to understand how the different index providers define the sub-asset class. You need to get under the hood of the ETF. For example, again, if an investor were to choose an S&P 500 ETF like Vanguard's VOO, right, for large cap exposure, but then the Russell 2000 ETF like VTWO, right, for small cap exposure, that investor would actually end up with gaps in their portfolio, right? They're, they're going to be missing exposure to certain mid-cap companies. Again, at the end of the day, the simplest way for an investor to ensure they have exposure to the, you know, the full investable market is to choose a total market fund. On today's episode, I'm joined by Andrew Kajeski. Andrew is the head of brokerage and investments for Vanguard's personal investor business. He's responsible for the core brokerage services, as well as the investment product portfolio for individual investors. During this episode, Andrew explains how the ETF structure and ecosystem works, how to compare ETFs with similar objectives, but track different indices, and how to determine which is better. He also discusses why keeping a consistent exposure to the same index is important for investors building a portfolio using several ETFs, why investors should avoid trading ETFs really early in a trading open, when is the best time to trade international ETFs, the differences between Canadian-listed and US-listed ETFs that track the same market, why ETFs can differ from their net asset value, what does it mean if it's trading at a premium or a discount to the net asset value, and so much more. I really enjoyed this deep dive into ETFs with Andrew. As we talk about a lot on this show, ETFs are a great option for many investors for their long-term portfolio, but as with any investment, there are many things investors need to consider and do due diligence on when choosing which ETF to buy, and especially now as there have been such an influx of ETFs and new ETF providers over the years, it's important to know what to look for in an ETF. And so Andrew covers all of this in this episode and more, and I found it extremely valuable. So with that all said, I really hope you enjoy today's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Andrew Kajeski. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Thank you for joining me today. Today, we're going to be talking all about ETFs. We talk about ETFs quite a bit on our show as good long-term investment options. So I think our listeners are generally quite familiar with ETFs, but I think sometimes we still don't know how they actually work. In order to frame today's conversation, I was hoping you could start out by explaining how the ETF structure and ecosystem works. Absolutely, Rebecca. Actually, maybe before I get into the structure and ecosystem of ETFs, I can give just a brief 101 on ETFs and then I can dive into the structure. Sounds great. So as many of your listeners probably already know, right, an ETF, which stands for Exchange Traded Fund. It's exactly what its name implies, right? They're, they're funds that trade on an exchange, generally tracking an index. And you know, while they're sometimes portrayed as these unique investment instruments, they're actually overwhelmingly similar to, to mutual funds. Uh, I would say the biggest difference between the two is how they trade. Mutual funds, they're priced. They trade once per day at the end of the day based on their net asset value or NAV of the securities in their portfolio. ETFs, on the other hand, they trade in the secondary market, just like stocks. And they're trading throughout the day. And it's this accessibility, which is one of the biggest advantages of of ETFs. Like mutual funds, ETFs are pooled investment vehicles, right? They allow investors to own part of a basket of securities. And ultimately, they help investors create a low cost, broadly diversified investment portfolio, especially when implementing index based strategies. For example, you know, one share of an ETF can give you access to, in some cases, thousands of securities, right? That would otherwise be extremely expensive and timely, right? For you to purchase and manage on your own. Take VTI, for example, that's Vanguard's total stock market ETF. 
one share, which is trading at about $200 a share right now. But for that, investors are getting access to a portfolio that holds over 4,000 stocks. You specifically asked about the ETF ecosystems. I'll go there now, but hopefully that background was helpful. So the way I think about it, for the average investor, you know, there's really just three parts of the ecosystem that matter to them. First is the ETF issuer, meaning what investment company is running the ETF, like Vanguard. Second is the index that the ETF actually tracks. You know, I mentioned VTI a moment ago. That ETF tracks the crisp US total stock market index. Most investors are familiar with the S&P 500, right? another popular index. Vanguard has an ETF VOO that tracks the S&P 500. And then the third element of the ecosystem that matters kind of the most is the actual brokerage firm where the investor has an account, like an IRA, where they're going to actually buy and sell and hold the ETFs. Now, beyond those three core parts of the ETF ecosystem, I mentioned a little earlier, ETFs trade on the secondary market. So the exchanges are an important part of the ecosystem. And then maybe the final unique element of the ecosystem to mention is what's known as authorized participants or APs. And really at the highest level, investors can think of APs as the institutions that are responsible for holding the underlying securities of the ETF. And ultimately, they're the ones providing liquidity in the ETF market by matching supply and demand with available ETF shares. Hopefully, that's, that's a helpful landscape of the, the ecosystem of ETFs. That was really helpful. And I want to dive into those parts in more detail. One quick question on the authorized participant, because I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because there's lots of scandals going on in different exchanges with cryptocurrencies where they didn't actually hold the physical asset. And so I think that's a good point to make about ETFs, where if you're buying the ETF, you know that the authorized participant is actually holding those underlying shares. So it's not just fake there. Exactly. Right. So to dive a little bit deeper into that, right? Again, you and I trade ETFs in the secondary market, products in the secondary market, right? They're priced based off of you know what people are willing to buy and sell them for. The risk here, just like any other stock, is that this could cause some high and low demand for an ETF, right? That could drive the price above or below the underlying basket of securities and what they're worth. But to alleviate this risk, that's the role that these APs, these authorized participants play. Right. They have contracts with the ETF issuers like Vanguard, right? So they can create and redeem ETF shares and bring that price back in line with the underlying securities. Hopefully, that's a, a helpful example to bring that to life. For sure. And I also want to touch on the index because this was something that I found quite confusing when I started out ETF investing because every ETF you buy, even if it says it tracks the same, say, like US small cap market. Well, the underlying index, it's tracking matters so much because that can really change the number of holdings and the ultimately the performance of it. And so I guess I'm just wondering, how can investors tell what makes one index better than the other? First of all, I'll take a couple steps back. I think it's important to recognize that indices, you know, they serve a variety of purposes for the market, for investors. First, you're often hearing stock market indices quoted in the media, right? They're constantly flashing across the screen on CNBC throughout the day. First and foremost, they, they play a really important role in just providing investors an indication of the day's market activity and performance. Second, and this is what, you, what we're going to talk about a bit more, is you know, indices also serve as these target benchmarks. Right, for index funds and ETFs. The most widely followed benchmark I mentioned earlier, the S&P 500, that's a gauge of the large cap US equities, right? That covers approximately 80% of the US stock market capitalization. And then maybe one final point worth making, you know, indices, they also provide this comparative performance measure, right? For investment products, again, like for mutual funds, ETFs, hedge funds. But to answer your question around how investors can think about comparing ETFs that have the same objectives, but hey, maybe different underlying indices, at the highest level, we'd encourage investors to ensure that hey, they're getting full exposure to the market or sector that they want to invest in. Yeah, I mentioned the S&P 500 a few times now, but if a client wants exposure to the full investable market of US equities, they really should be investing in a total stock market fund like VTI, right? because the S&P 500 is only going to give them exposure to, to large caps. 
And then I guess, what about combining different ETFs? Because I know if you are building, say, a globally diversified portfolio using a few different ETFs, if you combine ETFs that track different indices, I think it's FTSE versus the CRISP versus MSCI, and then you can actually overlap. You're exactly right, Rebecca, right? And hey, for any variety of reasons, some investors may choose to gain exposure through multiple sub-asset classes that you mentioned, right? Whether it's they want an individual large cap or individual mid or small cap ETF. Now, if that's the case, again, it's really important for investors to understand how the different index providers define the sub-asset class. You need to get under the hood of the ETF. For example, again, if an investor were to choose an S&P 500 ETF like Vanguard's VOO, right, for large cap exposure, But then the Russell 2000 ETF, like VTWO, right, for small cap exposure, that investor would actually end up with gaps in their portfolio, right? They're they're going to be missing exposure to certain mid cap companies. Again, at the end of the day, the simplest way for an investor to ensure they have exposure to the kind of the full investable market is to choose a total market fund. Yeah, that was really helpful. And then I guess just on this example still, I know that back in 2012, Vanguard dumped the MSCI index in favor for Chris for most of the US funds. And so that changed the benchmark that these funds were tracking. I was wondering if you could just talk about what was the reason for this change? I guess obviously Vanguard thought that it was a better index to track than the MSCI. Could you paint some color on maybe why that was? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when it comes to evaluating and selecting the benchmarks for our index funds and ETFs, as you can imagine, Vanguard has a really robust process, right? We're looking at multiple dimensions. You know, we're looking at everything from their index construction methodology to their market coverage, their classification criteria, their approach to rebalancing. And of course, we're looking at their cost. We also place a a lot of value on the objectivity, the credibility, and the independence offered by the different index provider. In the case of CRISP, back in 2012, as you, as you mentioned, Vanguard did end up choosing their benchmarks for 16 of our domestic equity funds, including our flagship total stock market fund. A couple key points I think are worth highlighting on that decision. First, CRISP, they're considered to be the premier data provider of historical US stock market data. They have a really strong standing, whether it's across different academic, government, the institutional investor uh, circles. And that's really the product of, hey, they have more than 60 years of academic and research experience at CRISP. Second, I think it's worth highlighting is their indices, they're owned and they're operated by CRISP. And what's that mean? That means that they don't really have any real or perceived conflicts of interest. They don't have an exclusive relationship with Vanguard. They don't have an exclusive relationship with any other fund manager. Instead, they're actually routinely working with us and other firms to get input and insights to improve their benchmarks. And it really, that all contributes to what we believe is a best-in-class practice for effective index construction, right? They start with an objective rules-based methodology. You look at it, there's really no ambiguity in their process about what they're including and what they're excluding and why in their benchmark. And maybe the final point I'd make, Rebecca, is that this move, it enabled us to lower the cost of investing for our clients. About a decade ago, when we made that decision, it was at a period where index providers were converging towards a set of industry standards. And things like indexing licensing costs, they became an increasingly important factor. And so this move really provided some long-term cost certainty and savings for our millions of investors. That's really helpful. And I guess one of the benefits of holding ETFs is that they generally are these very low cost investment vehicles, but they still do have costs. And as the ETF products are expanding, they can vary significantly based on what strategy. But one thing that comes up when it comes to the fees is that when we buy and sell an ETF, we can see the expense ratio it charges. But If I sell my ETF, I don't see those fees deducted on my brokerage. So I'm wondering if you can explain when and how ETFs actually take their fees. So there's actually three main costs that investors need to consider when they're buying, holding, and and selling an ETF. The first is actually the commission. You know, these days it is actually quite rare for a brokerage firm to charge a commission for an ETF trade, particularly if the investors, you know, doing it themselves online. But Nonetheless, it's still an important cost to be aware of as an investor, right? So that's one is the commission. Second is what's known as the bid-ask spread. Just like a stock, 
There is a price spread, which as I'm sure your listeners know, right? That's the difference between the highest price a buyer's willing to pay to purchase the shares, right? That's the bid. And then the lowest price that a seller is willing to accept for the shares, that's the ask. Many widely traded ETFs though, including Vanguard's, you know, they have spreads that they're as tight as a penny, right? So there's, it's typically not that much of an issue, but again, it's definitely something for investors to be aware of, particularly with brokerage firms that accept payment forward to flow. Midpoint, a trade at the midpoint, which is right in the middle of the, of the bid and the ask, that's generally considered the best price available, right? And at Vanguard, right, we provide midpoint pricing on over 95% of our clients' Vanguard ETF trade. So execution quality on the spread is, is another cost to keep in mind. And then the third cost to be aware of is what you mentioned, right? It's the ETF's expense ratio, which just like a mutual fund, it represents the annual operating expenses expressed as a percentage of the ETF's average net assets. In short, to keep it simple, right? You can the expense ratio, it's actually already factored in to the ETF's NAV. So the easiest way to think about this is that without an expense ratio, the price per share of an ETF would be actually slightly lower in, in the market. And actually, one last thing I think is worth mentioning, right, from an ETF cost perspective is for an investor to actually be mindful of the time of day that they actually trade. Generally speaking, an investor may want to avoid trading really early in the opening of a trading session. Or if they do, they should consider using a limit order versus a market order. And the main reason for this is what we call price discovery. So the underlying securities and ETF, you know, they're opening trading at the same time as the ETF. And it, sometimes it takes a moment for the ETF to reflect the prices of the underlying basket of securities. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. 
Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. I was going to actually ask you about that because that comes up when buying international ETFs too. If a Canadian investor is buying a Vanguard international ETF that trades on the TSX, but it's bought and sold during the hours that the market is open in North America, but the underlying stocks of the ETF are international stocks and they trade in a different market. What kind of problems come up when trading these international ETFs and then how can we avoid them? In general, it's better to trade international ETFs at a time that coincides with the trading hours of the underlying shares local markets. So intuitively, if you think about it right, the prices of an international ETF traded in the US or Canada, they tend to be closer to the value of the underlying shares and typically trade with a narrow bid-ask spread when their respective markets are open and overlap with the US or Canadian trading hours. For example, right, the first half of trading in the, in the US and Canada is going to overlap with the latter half of the trading day in Europe. Having said that, the ETF, their market price could actually better reflect the true value of its underlying shares, whose last available set of prices, maybe they haven't had a chance to adjust yet to the latest news and events. When the markets are closed, information does continue to flow that could affect the prices of an international ETF's underlying shares. So it's a unique advantage that ETFs provide. They're a valuable tool for, the, for price discovery, right? When the underlying assets aren't readily available for direct investment, they still provide an avenue for investors to access those securities. And I guess in the grand scheme of things, this isn't a major issue. It's not something that would really skew returns. But I guess if someone's trading often, which I don't think many of our listeners are trading ETFs often, but would that just come, I guess, in the form of a wider bid-ask spread so you would get, I guess, worse pricing perhaps? That's exactly right, Rebecca. And it kind of it goes right back to the point of being really thoughtful about when you're actually going to make your investment in an ETF, particularly an international ETF. You know? So in the US, typically that's going to be earlier in the day for a European-based strategy. And then I guess the other thing I wanted to talk about is I think ETFs are often thought of as a long-term portfolio play for myself. They're investments that I just plan to hold for the long-term rebalance here and there. But I guess unlike individual stock picking, these are investments I think of as a core part of my long-term investment plan. But what are some of the ways that ETFs can be used in an investment portfolio for short-term goals as well? First. I'll say it's great to hear you use the words long-term, right? Because at Vanguard, we stress the importance of investing for the long-term, right? And creating clear and appropriate investment goals. You know, we're always coaching our investors to remain disciplined, take a long-term uh, perspective in their investment plans. And as you mentioned, right, ETFs are often the right investment vehicle to utilize in your portfolio to achieve your long-term goals, whatever that is, whether you're saving for retirement, you're saving for your children's education. You maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. With that being said, right, that doesn't mean that if you have a shorter time horizon, such as six months, maybe even to a few years, that there aren't ETFs that won't work for you. For example, right, depending on your time horizon and your risk tolerance, something like a ultra short-term bond ETF like Vanguard's VUSB that could fit the needs of someone with a shorter time horizon as well. That's really helpful. And then I think thinking about if we plan to sell an ETF, there are two types of capital gains that investors need to be aware of. Can you talk a little bit about these and what implications they have? First and foremost, ETFs are well known for being highly tax efficient. I mentioned earlier that one of the biggest advantages of ETFs was their accessibility, right? Their ability to be traded throughout the day. Well, the tax efficiency of ETFs is right up there as another top advantage that they, that they have as an investment vehicle. And there's a few reasons for that. First, many ETFs, they track what are known as market cap weighted indices. And the effective tracking of these indices can and frankly should, that's achieved with minimal portfolio turnover, especially for equity indices. This low turnover, that means less trading in the portfolio, that contributes to ETFs you know, tax efficiency. You know, second, earlier we talked through the ETF ecosystem, 
right? Again, because ETFs trade on exchanges, much like the way individual stocks do, the vast majority of trading ETFs that takes place between me and you, right? On the secondary market, right? So there's no impact on the ETFs underlying securities. We also talked about those authorized participants, the APs, right? Their transactions for providing liquidity in the ETF, those are actually done with baskets of securities, not cash. These in-kind transactions, they're not considered taxable events. So combined, the market, the secondary market aspect and the AP aspect of the ETF ecosystem, they also contribute to ETFs tax efficiency. Having said all this, right, as you mentioned, Rebecca, it is important to recognize that while ETFs are tax efficient, they're not tax free. And this really all comes down to the realization of capital gains within ETFs. Consider the fact that prior to the bear market this year, you know, global equities have generally enjoyed significant gains for more than a decade. So as a result, many ETFs, they're holding securities with underlies, unrealized capital gains that can, they're going to start to become realized through the normal course of portfolio operations. You know, the important thing to keep in mind with ETF capital gains, though, it's just a matter of timing. Ultimately, as an investor, you're going to pay taxes on your gains at some point. So put another way, when an ETF distributes capital gains, you're going to see them show up in, I think, what's called your T3 slip, which I think is the same in the US as our 1099. But anyway, those taxes, those they're paid on those gains now rather than the future when perhaps when you do sell your ETFs at a gain at that point. So it really is just a matter of timing. And that's the difference in capital gains. Those realized within the fund as you're holding it, and then those that you realize when you actually sell the ETF and get the proceeds. It was really helpful because I know that some brokerages, you have to request for that information, but I think it's gotten a lot better over the years now and it's just automatically done for most. Exactly. At Vanguard, right at the, at the end of each year, going the tax season, we're able to get 8 million tax forms produced and out to our clients in early January, beginning of February, right? All automate for clients to be able to produce their taxes, whether it's either capital gains realized within the ETFs or again, because of the proceeds from, from sales of their ETFs. And then I guess one other thing I wanted to chat with you about is one misconception I had when I started investing was that if I buy a Canadian listed US ETF, such as VUN, for example, instead of buying the US listed ETF that tracks the same market, VTI, then I'm not subject to foreign currency risk because I bought the Canadian listed one. But can you talk about why this is not the case? Yes. At the highest level, first, you're right. right? When investing in an international ETF, your returns, they're not only affected by the prices of the underlying securities, but you do need to consider the impacts of currency exchange rates as well. That is very much an important factor for investors to be aware of. When you use your Canadian dollars right, or loonies, did I, did I get that right? You did. All right. So when you're, when you're using your Canadian dollars to invest in a US ETF, the first thing that the fund manager needs to do is convert your money to US dollars, right? That, that's no different than a US investor that's investing in a fund tracking, say, the FTSE 100. We need to convert the US dollars and the British pounds before we invest it on your behalf. And then later, if you called and told us, hey, to sell your investment, we would receive the British pound proceeds. And then we need to convert them back into USD before you can deposit them back into your account. Obviously, with each exchange of currency, you as the investor are facing some level of FX risk. Now, back to your specific example, whether the US ETF you're looking to invest in is listed in the US, VTI in your example, or it's listed on an exchange in Canada, which was VUN in your example, in either case, it will require converting your Canadian dollars into USD for the fund manager to put your money to work. So you're right. The foreign exchange risk is the same in each case. You know, the, really the main reason why a US ETF might be cross-listed in another market like Canada, it's to help minimize taxes right, faced by foreign investors right, when they want to invest in a US product. So essentially, they risk being double taxed. Right? As a Canadian investor buying VTI through a US exchange, you're going to risk getting taxed by both the US and the Canadian government. Not the case if you buy a Canadian-listed version of the ETF. Having said all this, Rebecca, I might, I might be able to help you out right, with the FX risk because there's actually often hedged share classes of ETFs. 
in the case of VTI, there actually is a share class available in Canada that is hedged the Canadian dollars. That ETF is VUS. So you can actually get the same exposure as VTI to the US total stock market while mitigating currency risk. But it's worth noting that typically with hedge share classes, you know, they, they come at a cost. In this case, the expense ratios of VUS and VUN, they're actually the same. But you got to think about things like previous discussion on capital gains, right? So a hedge share class is more prone to capital gains, right? Because of things like the monthly role of currency forwards, for example. Such an interesting time to think about, should we currency hedge our portfolio or not, especially if you are outside of the U.S. and a lot of your investments are in U.S. dollar and whether those investments make sense. But I'm glad that you pointed out that aspect there and they typically come with higher fees and it's up to the investor, I guess, to do their due diligence to think if that makes sense for them, if that makes sense for a portion of their portfolio. Because I guess the differences between those is with the unhedged for a foreign investor, my returns for investing in the US are made up of the currency and then the equity return. But if you do the unhedged, it's just the equity return. So it's you're kind of gambling because if the US dollar goes up, well, I would have been better off. But if it goes down over my holding period, then I would be better off with the hedged one. So it's kind of speculating in a sense. I think you're asking all the right questions and making all the right points, Rebecca. The main point that I'd add to all that is something we talked about earlier is focusing on the long term. Typically, things like foreign exchange rate risk is something that you have to worry about in more shorter term horizons. But if you're you're focused on a long-term investment goal, particularly retirement, you're typically going to be safe in investing in the on-hedged version, the on-hedged share class. And then you don't have to deal with the costs and the capital gains that are associated with with the hedge share class. That's a really good point. And I'm pretty sure that I read some Vanguard papers on that as well, the benefits of hedging or not. So if I find that, I'm going to link that in the show notes because I do remember reading that and it was really helpful. And then another thing that I wanted to ask you about was typically ETFs trade quite close to their net asset value but they can be a little bit different. So can you explain why ETF prices are different than their net asset value? And what does this mean? Is this a bad thing? It's definitely not a bad thing, but you are right. ETFs typically, they trade at a very modest, right? Very modest premium or discount to their NAV. You know, and really, it all comes down to supply and demand. Earlier, we talked about, again, that role of the authorized participant and what they, the role they play in the ETF ecosystem. I used the word liquidity before, but this is really what it's all about. You know, they're helping minimize the divergences between the, an ETF's market price and its NAV. But again, these divergences, they're more often than not quite minimal. It is worth noting though, right? It is, a, and I think this is why you're asking the question and it's a good one, that there are periods, right, of elevated market volatility and reduced liquidity in underlying securities where divergences between an ETF's market price and their NAV, they are more likely, particularly for fixed income ETFs. Actually, there's, there's a really great case study for ETFs and this particular issue back in March 2020, right? When we had the pandemic-related volatility. If you think back to that time period, liquidity in the bond markets, they were significantly lower than normal, right? Given the widespread uncertainty that we were facing during that time period. Despite that illiquidity though, bond ETFs continued trading with tight bid-ass spreads at that. But with higher than normal discounts relative to NAV, which is what we're talking about here. Ultimately, bond ETFs, they proved to be an extremely resilient option for liquidity and price discovery for investors during that period, right? There were investors who were seeking fixed income exposure during that period, could not access the underlying securities, but ETFs proved to be an extremely valuable tool during that period. Very similar to the example we were talking about earlier with international ETFs. Again, it shows how ETFs are an incredibly valuable tool for investors to be able to gain access to the underlying securities, but via the pooled vehicle. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Well, if an investor is comparing, say, two ETFs that are both tracking the similar market, but one is trading for a bigger discount to its net, as- net asset value than the other, is that a warning sign or is that just more a function of liquidity like you just talked about? If they're tracking the same index, I think it is a warning sign, Rebecca, right? And that's a- another key aspect when you're looking under the hood and choosing not only the ETF that you're looking to invest in, but the provider that you are choosing to invest with. Tracking error is a really important part of choosing an ETF. And how widely traded an ETF is, is what's really ultimately going to determine what that bid-ask spread is. And it shows the volume in the market. So I agree. It, it is something that investors should be looking at, that the tightness of the, the bid-ask spread. I want to talk a little bit about your expectations for ETF investing going forward. I had on a guest not too long ago, Eric Baltunas, who talked about how ETF inflows have risen considerably over recent years. And as ETF investing becomes more popular among investors, I'm wondering what are the major headwinds and maybe tailwinds that you think ETF investors will face this year and going forward? Well, first... I'm a big fan of Eric, so I'm jealous that you got to spend some time with him recently. I, I just read his book. I'll give it a plug, The Bogle Effect over the summer, which is a great read. I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody. But you're right. E- ETF flows, they have risen considerably over the past several years. I, I'm sure you went through the stats in some detail with Eric, but you know, just in case, total AUM and ETFs at the end of 2021, they were over $7 trillion. That's compared to just over $1 trillion in 2012. Vanguard's ETF AUM, it's currently at $2 trillion. From a cash flow perspective, $930 billion flowed into ETFs in 2021. And that's compared to just $185 billion in 2012. Vanguard's ETF cash flow, by comparison, you know, $347 billion last year in 2021, already at $178 billion 
year to date. But listen, I, I get where the question's coming from, despite those big numbers that I just shared. This year has been, it's been a tough one, right? It's been a tough one in the markets. There's no dancing around that. But it's not limited to ETFs or mutual funds. In fact, it really never is. Remember, an ETF, it's anything that's important for the listeners to recognize ETFs are an investment vehicle, not an asset class. But again, the reality is that across asset classes, it's been a tough year in 2022. Stocks were down 19% through the end of October. At the same time, bonds were down 16%. In fact, I think we're in the worst bond market since at least 1926. And combined, that means a 60-40 portfolio isn't faring well. A 60-40 portfolio is down 17%, which is its worst performance since 2009. But in all sincerity, right, it's during times like this, when you as an investor are searching for what to do, what move you feel like you need to make, the best action is actually to stay the course and do nothing, right? Maintain your focus on your, on your long-term goals. It's very easy to say during a down market like this, that indexing won't carry the day going forward or ETFs won't carry the day going forward. In fact, I feel like that narrative comes out in every down market, but go back and look at the data, right? especially over the past 30 years. Seemingly every year, there is a reason that the pundits will say it's time to pull out of the markets or seek other sources of alpha outside indexing. And in the end, market timers, they're too often they're suffering from missing out when the markets recover. We have a saying here during times like this, we call this Vanguard weather, because our investment philosophy, we think it carries the day. You got to focus on things that you can control during times like this. You focus on your goals, your asset allocation, minimizing your costs and maintaining a long-term perspective. I think that was such great advice because I think everyone's worried at this point, what's going to happen? Narratives are so powerful. We think this time is different, but I think A lot of us would regret if in 10, 20 years, we just didn't invest and we wanted to keep more cash and the market recovers and you look back on all of the gains that you could have made by just sticking to your investment strategy and weathering the storm when everything seems scary. You can look back on history and the market has historically always recovered after even the worst narratives, the worst crashes. And so I think that was really helpful to hear from you. But with that said, I guess in terms of investing in ETFs, they're considered pretty low risk investments, really diversified usually. But are there any risks in investing in ETFs that aren't present in other classes? ETFs, they aren't inherently more or less risky than, say, mutual funds. But when it does come to risk, it is important to note that ETFs and mutual funds, they're designed with built-in diversification, given they traditionally include tens, hundreds, thousands of individual stocks or bonds. They are far less risky than investing in, say, individual stocks or bonds. As with any investment, though, right, you need to ask yourself, what are your goals? Right. And once you've determined those and you assess your risk tolerance, you can be better positioned to create a balanced and diversified portfolio using vehicles such as ETFs or mutual funds, right? The best align with those long-term objectives. I will point out kind of two risk themes though, when it when it comes to the ETFs. First is, you know, there's certainly been an influx of what I'll call trendy ETFs over the past few years. Right. These are really narrowly focused ETFs. You need to make sure you look under the hood and really understand what these ETFs hold. Many ETFs are highly concentrated, right? They have portfolios that are focused narrowly on, say, an individual country or a subsector. Some recently launched ETFs, they only hold a single security. And there's others that are, they're kind of masquerading as index funds, but they're really offering active strategies. And so often these types of ETFs, they're coming with a higher than average expense ratio, and they're trading with that wider spread that we talked about earlier as well. And by the way, you're never going to find these types of ETFs offered at Vanguard. We only launch and offer products that we believe have an enduring investment merit and add enduring value for our clients. And the markets, they've spoken here with these types of ETFs. If you look back to the beginning of 2020, more than 450 ETFs have actually been liquidated or merged across the industry. Often there is just as many ETFs that close in a given year, if not more than the the number that's actually been launched in a given year. And it comes down in large part because these strategies, they don't have an enduring investment case, right? Instead, again, they're chasing these recent fads. 
So that's kind of one big risk theme. The, the second that I'd point out is when you're considering investing in ETFs, it's just as important sometimes to choose not just what ETF you're going to invest in, but actually where you're going to make that investment. These days, you can, you can open up a brokerage account at any number of firms. You want to make sure though that the experience that the firm you chooses matches your goals. For example, at Vanguard, you know, we have a purposely designed digital experience that encourages clients to save more, trade less, and again, focus on the long-term versus frequent trading and investing in products that are overly risky and don't match your long-term goals. That was really interesting. You pointed out I want to touch on a few things there because we actually talked about, I talked with Eric about single stock ETFs, leveraged ETF products. And I didn't realize that those weren't offered by Vanguard, but that kind of makes sense. It speaks to the philosophy of the company. And it's just interesting to see how they can differ and when investors should compare which fund or provider to go to. There's lots to consider beyond perhaps even the lowest expense ratio. It's how they're managing those funds as well. And I do want to touch on, I found that so interesting how you mentioned so many ETFs close. Do you have any other color you can paint on what types of ETFs are those? Are they more of the stylized thematic ones? I'll hit on a couple of points. Maybe first on your your last question there. Yeah, what you're definitely going to see is the the ETFs that are closing and, and don't have a lot of a very long shelf life, I guess, as I call it. It is going to be these more thematic, trendy ETFs. Just like mutual funds, ETFs, they need AUM. They need to have mark, they need to build up their capital and make sure that they're an enduring product that investors can use. And a lot of these trendy ETFs, they'll they'll catch a lot of traction for a couple of months and then they're not gonna get the the cash flow and the trading that's needed to be a, an enduring investment product for clients. And to your point, again. Yes, you will not see these type of products offered at Vanguard. And you kind of think about them, think about that in two different ways. One is, is Vanguard actually going to launch a product like that? We're an investment manager, we're a product provider. And there's kind of three critical questions that we ask ourselves when we're deciding whether we're going to launch a product or not. You know, again, will the fund have an enduring investment merit right? that can improve investor outcomes? Again, we don't face chase fads. I think the second is, Will the fund satisfy a clear or unmet client need? And the third is, can Vanguard be best in class? Can we stand out in the marketplace and ultimately give the investors the best chance for investment success? We want to make sure, again, it's all about enduring investment merit and meeting a client need. That's in the products that we launch. We're also a brokerage firm, right? You can invest in non-Vanguard products through our brokerage account. And actually, back in 2019, we made the decision to block the availability of leverage and inverse products on our platform. And that goes again to making sure that we have products on our platform that match our investment philosophy. And again, it's all about, again, client outcomes and making sure that clients can reach their long-term goals. And those products are often misunderstood by investors and are not suitable for the average retail investor. I think that's really great from a brand and company perspective. I just had a guest on who were, we were talking about how investors can find their own investment philosophy and why it's so important to have one and stick to it. And it goes back to a company level too, where your Vanguard's just really sticking to their philosophy. Even if it could make money by offering these products, it's they're sticking to the brand and what they believe in, in terms of investments. I guess lastly, I am wondering, most of our listeners are very familiar with how Vanguard just really pioneered the low cost investing space, but now there are a ton of ETF and index providers as we're just talking about what differentiates Vanguard from the rest, anything else beyond what you already kind of outlined for us. Yeah, you mentioned that many folks know Vanguard for being the low cost provider and you're right, they're right. We, We take a lot of pride in that. We take a lot of pride in the impact that we've had on investors by consistently driving down their costs of investing right over the past four decades. We do that through low-cost index products, right? As you mentioned. But by the way, our low-cost approach that extends to active funds as well. So out of our seven trillion dollars under management, 1.5 trillion of that is actually in active funds. Most people don't recognize that we are more than an index shop as well. And it's, we bring that same low cost approach to those products as well. 
And it's actually, it's not just about low costs, right? It's about performance. So across both our index and our active lineups, we consistently perform at the top of our peer sets, right? Whether it's over a one, three, five, 10 year horizon. So I think you're getting the highest quality products at the lowest costs, right? When you come to Vanguard. But in all honesty, right, beyond the products that we offer, the thing we take the most pride in at Vanguard is our client alignment. We've talked a little bit about that throughout our discussion. Vanguard's actually the only client-owned investment company in the industry. So at the end of the day, we exist for one reason and one reason only, and that's to give investors the best chance for investment success. Yeah. And I know our old host, Clay, had Eric on talking about that. Well, that was all his book was about how the Bogle effect and how it's just so client focused. And so I just think it's such an incredible story. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. That was so great. I learned so much from you. Before I let you go, where can the listeners go to learn more about you and your work at Vanguard? First, thanks for having me, Rebecca. I I enjoyed the discussion as well. I'd encourage listeners to visit our website, Vanguard.com, or download our mobile app right to open up an account. Maybe more importantly, we have a section on our website, Investor Resources and Education. It's dedicated to providing investors with investment news, market outlooks, product insights. Whether an investor is curious in learning more about ETFs, which we talked about today, or other investment products, right? we're committed to empowering investors with the knowledge that can ultimately give them, again, the best chance for investment success. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks, Rebecca. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.